0: Kia ora, and welcome to the coronavirus podcast. I'm Isolde, I'm 14, and during lockdown I've been doing music practice, schoolwork, walks, football, attempting to bake, burning a lot of the baking,
1: and chilling out. I'm really looking forward to seeing my friends and getting back to school. Kia ora Isolde. it's great to hear from you. We wish you all the best for your first day back at school. I'm Indira Stewart. Welcome to the Coronavirus Podcast. You may have noticed the duration of today's episode is a bit longer than normal. That's because RNZ's daily news podcast, The Detail, is back and their very first episode is out. So we'll play that for you a bit later in the show. But first, let's get to the headlines. We had just one new case of COVID-19 over the weekend, a preschool-aged boy, who is a household contact of someone in the Rosewood Rest Home Cluster. 96% of all the people infected in New Zealand have recovered, meaning there are only 66 active cases in the entire country. But as Otago University epidemiologist Dr Michael Baker explained on RNZ's Sunday morning programme, there's still a lot of uncertainty around the move to Level 2. We don't really have a way of knowing because, of course, the focus has shifted from, I guess, a very observable um, home quarantine, as you say, at level four and three, to, I think, very much individual responsibility and uh, the judgment of business owners and so on. Um, so um, obviously people should be keeping um, two metres distance in um, public spaces and one metre uh, distance in other environments and um, you know, limiting the size of gatherings. So I think it's a hard thing to measure, Um, we will know the answer um, one way or another in um, the next two to three weeks as to whether we see more cases. Meanwhile, today is the first day back at school for most of New Zealand's school kids. Denise Torrey, principal of Summerfield School in Christchurch, says they're expecting a full range of emotions from students.
2: We're going to have everything. We're going to have the children who will, like they do on the first day of school, run in the gate, uh, excited to see their friends and teachers. We're going to have... Some children a little bit worried that mum and dad might have to stay at the gate initially, but they'll have all their teachers there to greet them when they come. So we're going to have a wide variety. What we do know from earthquakes is it's a bit of a roller coaster. Everyone will come back, there'll be a bit of adrenaline, and then the real world will kick in. And for many of our children, the real world is going to be unemployment for whānau. So we're going to be tracking those kids really closely. We're going to look at what supports our community can put in place for our kids and our community.
1: Stephen Hargreaves from the Auckland Secondary Principals Association says schools have been busy over the last week putting plans in place for hygiene and
3: cleaning. Schools are uh, right on top of this. I I mean, I'm, you know, just just one school, but I I know this is what's happening everywhere else. We've had all staff in the last two days planning down to the finest detail about, okay, we're in a technology class, how are we going to clean the tools between uses of students? And and that's going on in every school up and down the country.
1: Education Minister Chris Hipkins has pointed out that even if a case of COVID-19 does appear in a school, they do have good systems for tracing any contacts. If
0: there is ever a need to contact trace in a school environment, it's actually very easy to do using the existing systems that they already have. But again, I I want to reiterate, as I have from the beginning, that that one of the the precursors for moving from Level 3 to Level 2 is that we're relatively confident that the risk of COVID-19 coming through the school gate in the first place is very, very
1: low. But Mr Hipkins says not everyone will be able to return to class today, including those with underlying health conditions and those who need additional support for learning
0: for some of those kids with high needs um that's going to be a careful transition period because they don't necessarily cope well with sudden changes to their routines and so uh, you know schools will be working very closely with families to support the kids in that circumstance it's a matter of the schools and the families working together to agree a plan to get those kids back to school and to keep them safe when as they come back to school
1: the police are investigating a series of suspected arsons of cell phone towers 17 towers have been attacked over the last two months, including three fires this weekend in Auckland and Porirua. There have been attacks on cell phone towers all over the world linked to a debunked conspiracy theory that 5G causes COVID-19. While well, the chief executive of the telecommunications forum, Jeff Thorne, says anyone with information about the fires needs to come forward urgently.
3: We're not sure what The motivation of these attacks is, but whatever it is, it's putting lives potentially at risk because all of the damage that's occurring to the cell towers is preventing people potentially from making calls to triple one emergency services.
1: Meanwhile, in overseas news, thousands of people have taken in protests against lockdowns and economic policies in the UK and Europe. In the UK, 19 people were arrested at a protest in London's Hyde Park, including the brother of former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. In Spain, protesters banged pots and pans, calling for the resignation of the government. And in Berlin, there was a rally calling for the end of lockdown measures. While in Poland, police fired tear gas on protesters calling for businesses to reopen. RNZ's daily news podcast The Detail is back on this week and their very first episode is focused on Queenstown. The city has been dealt a hammer blow by COVID-19 and with no real idea of when international tourism will return to New Zealand there are serious questions over its future. So without any further ado here's the detail.
0: Kia ora, welcome to The Detail, it's great to be back. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly and today, Queenstown, from exciting adventure capital bursting with tourists to
1: this. The size of the iceberg the economy's just hit became very apparent today. In just a month, Queenstown has gone from being one of the richest regions in the country to one of the poorest.
3: We could not be any worse than we are at the present time. Two months ago, we were the most desirable part of New Zealand to live in. Um, growth in population, growth in GDP, uh, suddenly we have morphed into being probably the most financially challenged district in our country.
1: The mayor of Queenstown Lakes has described plans to cut hundreds of tourism jobs as a horror show. One of the country's largest tourist operators, Naitahu Tourism, has announced plans to close its businesses.
0: It's 300 jobs at risk. Many of the jobs are in Queenstown. Tourism job losses there now
3: over 5,000. It really brings home how big this impact is that even one of our most iconic, one of our biggest tourism businesses in the country uh,
2: can't carry on without any customers.
0: We look at Queenstown's economic coronavirus bloodbath and what it will take to recover. Will there be fewer fresh-faced bungee jumpers and more grey-haired golfers? And will rich foreigners be allowed to buy houses again?
3: Look, they've been fantastic for this region. They're good citizens. They've had a lot of value. They've certainly not taken, in most cases I know, taken anything out of the economy, pouring money in.
0: From the time the famous Queenstown gondola started to ferry tourists up Ben Lomond 50 years ago, the picturesque town has been a mecca for tourists. Soaring mountains and serene lakes, adventure and drama, Queenstown had it all. So much so that a report in 2018 detailed massive infrastructure problems caused by too many overseas tourists. Under pressure were housing, transport, the airport, water supply and the environment. Environment. Residents were carrying the load when at peak times for every local, there were 34 visitors. But tourists are so valuable. Visitors who've come to New Zealand for Queenstown have spent between $1.44 and $1.74 billion a year. But the boom that took off in the 80s is now bust. Words like welfare tsunami, grief,
2: economic bloodbath and horror show are being used. It's tumbleweed town. Everything is empty, the streets have been empty, and yet when we're out, out of the roads and everywhere else, we're in the most beautiful country, we look up at the mountains, the trails are being used by families, it's the most surreal feeling of a death in the family and still a beautiful place to be and to lock
0: down. Kay Parker has been in Queenstown 22 years. She ran the Cure Kids charity and has her own Airbnb business. What happened when COVID-19 first hit sums up what it was like living in this town of 22,000.
2: The only thing is people stopped moaning about the traffic jams. (laughs) Um, So it didn't change till lockdown. And literally overnight it changed because people were... Um, everybody. It was still bustling. We still had many um, people here. There were lots of tourists stuck.
0: But it is what will happen now, even under Level 2, that is alarming.
2: The first tsunami hit here because we will very soon, landlords will be able to start giving notice to people who can't pay their rents and evicting them. And um, we also know that many cafes and restaurants will never open again. What, what do you mean by the tsunami? What does that mean? We're, we're talking about the welfare tsunami. So literally over the last month or so and more so last week, Some of the big tourism companies and the hotels are telling their staff, they are starting to consult with them and telling um, perhaps 80% of them they're losing their jobs. Um, And we all know that when that worker grant, which was a marvellous thing, um, is over, there's going to be so many other jobs that are going to go. And are you
0: actually seeing the impact of that? I mean, all these workers who must be just kind of stuck in Queenstown, do you see them around?
2: Yes, you do. I have been in town late at night and it's a bit scary now. It was never scary uh, for me. And there's people hanging around... very few, but they're hanging around late at night. But how I know is because of our greatest needs funds. So I, I already know that, for instance, the Salvation Army and the frontline welfare, the government has spent over a million dollars in food uh, cards and gift parcels, food parcels here already. Um, Happiness House is just inundated. Baskets of blessings. I think the last, the last stat I heard was that they had um, frozen five thousand meals in lockdown, and, and they can't keep up with demand. Everywhere we go, we're seeing more need. Uh, People are now coming out desperate for medical. They can't afford to go to the doctor for either acute or underlying illnesses. When they can't put food on their family's table, they're not going to the doctor for their own health. So we're trying to do something about that now. Who are these people, Kay? There is, first of all, the migrant workers were the most in the news. Tourism hotspot Queenstown is facing a migrant worker crisis. Thousands of visitors across tourism and hospitality find themselves unemployed, unable to return home and asking for more help. Because I've been a backbone of our community doing all the jobs that really Kiwis didn't want to do, but they at first had no, no real rights. With nearly 7,000 families and individuals seeking welfare from the district council. Around three quarters are migrant workers.
3: There is a growing humanitarian crisis here.
2: In the civil emergency fund they can get up to $240 a week for food depending on the size of their groups Um, but going forward if they've lost their jobs they are technically in breach of their visa therefore if they haven't got another job which is probably unlikely here, because we're expecting such a high unemployment. Um, When they go to renew their visa, it won't be renewed, probably. Queues like this outside the Salvation Army continue to grow. It's seen demand for support like food parcels spike 600%. It's
1: like putting a bandaga on the Titanic. Um, We can only provide food and uh, winter clothing and linen, Um, but a number of these people, particularly a migrant community, are facing um, the need to pay for rent, um, for power.
2: And it's not just our wonderful migrant workers. It's also our Kiwi workers. uh, Many young people down here living the dream, having a great old time. They're Oe in New Zealand. They're now also out of work. But we also have another really important group, those companies, those people who have worked their butt off and they've lost their companies and they've had to put their staff off and they themselves are in really difficult situation, probably for the first time in their lives. There's this complete disbelief and this huge worry and then mortgage payments coming for them, the grief of having to put off workers who've been with them for years and having to say that our company's no longer sustainable.
0: Kay Parker was out with a friend when she came up with the Wakatipu Greatest Needs
2: Fund. I was literally out biking with a friend the week before lockdown. I had slowly um, stockpiled basic food that I told my doctor the day before the week before lockdown, that if anyone needed food or what have you, um, I had stockpiled food to help our neighbourhood and anybody else in need. The next day I had two phone calls for desperate families living on $50 and not being able to feed their family. And I said to my friend, I think I'd better get out of retirement and start a fund. She also helped me at Cure Kids and with the Trails Trust, and she said, all right, we'll do it together. So we did.
0: And it's just gone from there. It's it's
2: yes, snowballed. I had my first major donor, the Hugo Charitable Trust. I I went straight home from that bike ride, ran them, and asked how much they would give me to start, and how much they would give me if I reached quarter of a million. <laughs> and um, uh, they told me um their wonderful generous donation. At, Six o'clock on Saturday, Saree got involved. I got on the phone. I went and saw people and asked. Great group to be uh, on our granting committee. And then um, I've been fundraising ever since. So
0: basically you tapped into some of your wealthy friends and contacts?
2: Yes. And then they gave me others. Um, they gave me their, their people and it's just snowballed. So how much have you got now? What sort of
0: donations?
2: We are literally just about at 638,000. Million is our goal and I hope the next couple of weeks I've been a bit distracted um, with um, helping some migrants get out um, of New Zealand currently so I'm back onto it these next two weeks. I hope to get Near to eight hundred thousand. What do you mean you've been
0: distracted with some helping some migrants get out? Well, tell me that. <laughs> tell me about that.
2: Well, I, I got a call from um, uh, Luana Goncales who is very well known in the South American community here. I didn't know her, but she basically said. Uh, the Brazilian government has chartered a plane. I've got all these people on it, migrant workers, some tourists stranded, the, the parents of migrant workers who got stuck here. And she said they cannot get from Queenstown to Auckland to get that flight. And she was just so eloquent and touched my heart and it was outside my funds remit. So I said, right, let's just get on and do it together. So overnight... She told me the situation. I talked to our mayor, um, Jim Bolt. He agreed to hire a bus. Remember, we were in distance things, so a 50-seater had to be applied for 23 people. And then we started um, letting people know that they could get the bus and that it would be free. And then the next issue was there were people who wanted to go home who actually got a a paid for flight by the government and they couldn't afford the airfare from Christchurch to Auckland. So I got on to my travel agent, local Owen Wood, and he just worked miracles all week, moving people around, getting cheaper fares, putting people on, even that Um, Friday afternoon when the plane went out at midnight, he was still getting people um, last flights out of Christchurch. So we all danced and diced, but we got 26 out in the end. Because three were in bubbles, so we could take three more people. And I was so pleased for them as a mum. I just thought if I had kids who wanted to come home and needed to come home and we had a plane fierce organised yet, they couldn't get out of Queenstown, it would break my heart. So mm. we just did it.
0: But Kate, that's kind of interesting in a way because flying back to Brazil, which is you know, they have got a massive problem on their hands over there, a crisis. But I I guess, does that sort of illustrate the situation in Queenstown, that it's so dire for people like them?
2: Well, I think it does to a degree. I think that most of us, most young people on an OE or wanting to stay here, and many of them did, and were very sad to say goodbye. They knew that there wasn't a future here now, now that this had happened. And I think our great urge, often many of us, when we realise it is going to get dire, that we want to go home to our families no matter what. Um, I would want my children home, and in my old days, if a pandemic had struck on my OE, um, I think I would rather be home. So that's
0: Queenstown now, but what about its future? Here's Sirion Edgar, businessman and philanthropist. He's been coming to Queenstown for 65 years and has had a house here for 40 years. He's on a council steering committee working on its economic recovery.
3: We will see people coming for longer. Uh, the, The mix will change. I suspect we'll see more older people. One, because they'll be able to travel. They know that economically they're in a better position. But also, uh, and that will change, they'll come for longer. The golfers will want to play, you know, some of the five courses here or all of them. So they'll stay for a week. And it, uh, the young people will be uh, more concerned to um, make sure they've got a job
0: but away from tourism you know I've heard people say that Queenstown, this is the time now that Queenstown diversifies that it's too, way too dependent on tourism and it has to get into other things, developing other things such as, I don't know, developing the film industry for example
3: Yeah, look everyone has recognised that but they're not easy I mean one of the areas I've been involved with is education and we have established the resort college here catering for hospitality and adventure tourism and things like education are certainly things to be encouraged and film industry is another one but i mean look at the film industry now i mean with no one being allowed to travel borders closed that slowed that totally as well Mm. so and obviously technology, everyone wants to, um, you know, create a basis. And that is something that w- is very attractive for a place, you know, to attract bright young people in that sector. Queenstown's the perfect place to bring up a family for outdoor and have outdoor pursuits. But everyone in the world wants that. So it's not easy. You're not suddenly going to get Google want to set up a branch here unless... Um, so I think we will see more of it, but we do have to be practical that tourism has been good for the, the community. I think it, we will diversify over time, but it, it's not a sudden panacea that will change overnight. In over five years, I would love to think tourism would drop to 60% or even hopefully 50%, but you can't just turn things on and off and particularly attract new businesses that are going to employ a substantial number of people in a short time frame. Mm. In a short time frame, I say one to two years.
0: And he reckons it's time to let the foreign buyers back into our housing market.
3: New Zealand has always been short of capital. So they bring in money, which helps everyone. And, you know, you, you can't take the land away so I don't see any – the argument – and look, and there were some valid reasons that people were coming in and buying up all these cheap houses and, you know, that pushed up the prices. But put a, they can't buy anything under $3 million or something, so you're not going to affect the first home buyer. But they do – I mean, the mutt langs of the world, mm-hmm. Julian Robertson, Mr. Ishii, the late Mr. Ishii, those people – and so they add real value. And, you know, it benefits everyone. Mm. Look at what's been created in the Tapu. It's just the most amazing restoration back to the values. What Mr. Ishi's and, you and know, his family have done for Millbrook, creating a world-class resort facility. These people have been wonderful contributors. So we... Everyone in New Zealand benefits. Why wouldn't you want them? Very
0: controversial. Um, Can I... Yeah, I mean, but I think...
3: And understand that at bottom end, your last thing you wanted, and I understand there was a lot of Chinese coming in and buying hundreds of houses and everything and then just sort of putting them back on the market at a higher price. But look at the criteria. You know, there is people that add real value... And we can use some extra capital at this time.
0: Before COVID-19 hit, Queenstown was grappling with a different crisis. High house prices and nowhere for renters to live. In a town of extremes, thousands have been living on the breadline. Hot bedding, 30 to a house. Eon Edgar says locals like the peace and quiet, but that doesn't pay the bills.
3: You know, there's a new game in town. You rush to the window when you hear an aeroplane. (laughs) But yeah. I think that we will get... Uh, some activity will be good and it is going to be very necessary. But I don't see as as I said, getting back to those pre-COVID-19 levels for a very long time.
0: What will happen with all these empty hotel rooms?
3: Um, I think two things. One... They will be very price competitive, which means that, which will make it a lot tougher for the Airbnb type alternatives. So I think they will attract a bigger share of the market, which they had lost with the advent of things like Airbnb. So they'll drop their prices to make it attractive. And secondly, some of the more marginal ones may be used for other forms of accommodation. As I understand, close to 20% of houses in Queenstown were on Airbnb. Well, that's just collapsed. So suddenly, a lot of those that accommodation had switched from long-term rental to short-term because you obviously could get a higher rate. Well, suddenly, all those people are back in the market looking for people to rent. So from a shortage, we now have oversupply. In addition, there is a couple of major developments, uh, one about 180 apartments and another one smaller and a couple more still nearly finished, which are going to add to that oversupply situation. So I think two things will affect one, as I said, there is now no shortage of accommodation. And secondly, rentals will reduce, which will make it easier for those struggling to find accommodation at a reasonable price.
0: Which is good. That's a good thing. But, of course, there's no jobs.
3: Well, I mean, and, and the other factor, of course, is that with, with a substantial... Unemployment we're expecting, and we're already seeing substantial people who've had to be put off, and I think that will compound once the wage subsidy ends. You know, reality is um, it can't go on forever. But with that, people will leave the district, particularly those in the construction sector, because obviously places like Dunedin with the very substantial. Um, new hospital build, that will require labor, and other people will return to home. And some of our wonderful migrants who are such a vibrant part of the economy will return home uh, because their visas will run out or and there's no job opportunities.
0: Can I just ask you lastly, How do you feel about things in Queenstown? I mean, do you feel sad, or do you feel optimistic about what's ahead? What's your general feeling about things?
3: Oh, the sun will shine, rise in the morning. We will get through this. I mean, it's, we're very fortunate, the strong leadership, Jim Bolt. I mean, he's been through this before, you know, he was chief executive of the airport, the Christchurch airport. He's reacted quickly, he's put some good people around. We're conscious of the welfare problems that are going to only enhance, unfortunately. But, um, so we'll get through this. And in times it will be a, probably a more caring and better community. We will get more diversity in our interests, but you've got to be practical. That will take time. Tourism will always remain a big part of Queenstown, but hopefully more quality to less quantity.
0: Can you visualise what Queenstown is going to be like in the future? I mean, this is going to take a long, long time, months, years, but can you imagine what it's going to be like? Because it won't surely won't be the same.
2: It won't be the same, but We are resilient and we are positive and we will work really hard and help each other. Our whole motto here at the moment is be kind. So we're all doing acts of kindness, whether it's little or big. When this is over, for many who are coming to visit, they'll love it. It'll be like, I've been here 22 years. It will probably be like perhaps 10 or 15 years ago. So for visitors, i think they're only for a treat to be quite honest because things will still open again and they'll still be looked after and our beauties all around us it's not like a war where or an earthquake like poor Christchurch, where all the places is devastated it's still beautiful but the undercurrent for all of us it is a grief and we will grieve for the many people who are hurting but help as best we can and we will come back
1: that was the detail. And of course, you can subscribe to the detail wherever you've subscribed to the Coronavirus Podcast. It's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, and of course on the RNZ app too. That's all for this episode. We'll be back with you tomorrow. Kia homaru, matewa. The coronavirus podcast is presented by me and Dara Stewart. It's produced by William Ray, Sonia Sly and Katie Gossett. Our sound engineer is Adrian Holly and the executive producer is Tim Watkin.